Welcome to the Miller Oddcast, a brand new podcast from the Missouri Review. For over 40 years now, TMR has been discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Our quarterly magazine appears in print, digital, and audio formats. Learn more at MissouriReview.com. Hello, the internet. It's time for episode 12 of the Oddcast. I remain Mark McKee, Managing Editor of the Missouri Review. This episode we feature on the education of the youth, a decidedly dark humor entry by Harrison Gatlin. Gatlin lives in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where he's working on his MFA in fiction. He turned 27 on the 27th of January this year, but every day is still a coming-of-age story. He's currently writing a book about attention, addiction, and consumer products, and he swears he will spend less time on his phone this year. On the Education of the Youth is a notable entry from our 2020 Miller Audio Prize. The piece is narrated by a former third grade teacher who details his dedication to teaching the eight-year-olds in his charge about mortality. At first, this just entails having his class read Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. As he continues to conduct discussions about death and dying, the process invites in the children a kind of nihilism that ultimately leads to a concerning confrontation while the class is on a field trip. But, you know, in a funny way. The tensions between what the students demand to satisfy their intellectual curiosity about death and that curiosity's heartlessness and confrontation with a real-world situation full of mortal danger are exaggerated just enough to be funny and not so much that the questions raised lose their gravitas. See for yourself with Harrison Gadlin's On the Education of the Youth. This is on the education of the youth. I'm still not convinced I was wrong. You see, mortality is a strange thing and important. It wouldn't have been fair to them if I'd oversimplified it. I know the eight-year-old brain may not be able to fathom all the depraved depths of the human soul. Fine. Principal McPherson already belabored this point. But these children of privilege can't hide away in their ivory smocks forever. It isn't fair to the students for us to teach them that every story has a happy ending. At some point, life will hit them in the eye with a wrench. What better way to soften the blow than through the experience, at an early age, of an imagined reality? That's why I started my third grade homeroom readings with The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. Where else would you begin when trying to demonstrate the base wickedness that's been drilled by routine into the human condition over millennia? Well, I suppose there's the Bible. But I only had the kids three times a week, and there are so many holidays now. We wouldn't have made it past numbers. And the lottery is widely accepted as canon. They responded well to it. Dare I say, they enjoyed it? Doe-eared Tommy Ingalls brought the story home to his mother and asked for more like it at bedtime. And that impudent prude called the school to complain. But no matter. Stalwart educators soldier on. Although, I did have to rethink my pedagogical method for other reasons. The thing is, despite all the fun we were having, I was worried the students were missing out on some of the subtext. It was like they didn't get it. The terror, that is. And then I realized they lacked context. I couldn't tiptoe around the Bible in a class like this. I had to face it head on. And I did. Thrice a week and Fridays after class. Because of the time crunch, I tried to choose only the stories that really drive the point home. 
By week three, the stove was really burning. Nothing like a nice romp through the fire and brimstone of revelations to awaken the naked terror of existence that society tries to hide with its beauty pageants and sports contests. I did my best to explain the significance of the cross. To my chagrin, I had to act out a few pedantic footnotes. Looking back, my students remind me a bit of the apostles in the story, staring dumbly at their leader while the delicious wheels of cogitation turn. I miss them. The way their little minds latched onto the concept of sacrifice was endearing. To cash an empty existence in for grace and beauty and share it with others, is that not the aim of life? The children asked. Perhaps, I said, but perhaps it is nothing, I said. I like to make them wrestle with these thoughts on their own. It inspires critical thinking. Was Christ then nothing? They asked. Is anything not nothing? I have to admit, their interest in nihilism was impressive, albeit dogmatic at times. I told them just wait until we get to Schopenhauer. They didn't take to all the Bible's tales. I suspect Job left something to be desired. But the important thing was, I managed to get the point across that there may be an afterlife infinitely more painful than our present life. As an educator, I know success when I see it. With children, you can tell by the pallor in their faces. I recall Maggie Rogers' thinking cap shot right off her head. Now, by this time, Philistine McPherson had caught wind of the free and careful way in which I was instructing. He told me I was overstepping my bounds as a teacher. Bounds, I said. I am a professor of the human soul. Show me its bounds. Anyways, I'll have my chance at a discourse with McPherson in a proper court of law before the corpulent madam sings, as they say. And I'll be prepared. I was many things as an educator, but a slacker I was not. So naturally, I upped the ante and offered to stay after school every day, lecturing on suffering for anyone who wanted to hear more. Remember our time crunch. I thought it would be nice to incorporate some visual art, so I put Goya's black paintings on the projector, and we looked at those, too. Marina Phillips said after class that she could feel her own mortal heartbeat when she saw Saturn biting the flesh off his son's body. What a thrilling thing to hear as an instructor in the humanities. Can you imagine? My students were finally waking up to death. I sensed the hunger in the room, hunger for more than mere theory, but I lacked the resources to satiate it. The school had them, but of course, they wouldn't fund a field trip to death row. They wouldn't even provide me with the inconsequential sum it would have taken to bring one of the inmates to class. I wanted, for a time, to intensify our show-and-tell sessions. I considered bringing in a wounded animal, a bird that had flown into a window, or a raccoon that barely survived a collision with an SUV, but it wouldn't have been any use. Animals don't have anywhere near as complex a cognitive process as we do, not to mention their nervous systems. You see, we weren't interested in the physical aspect of dying. We sought an understanding of dying qua grappling with the negation of life and the whole can of psychic worms that opens up. Luckily, I had a van and some resourcefulness. Everyone piled in during one of our after-school lecture periods, and I improvised a budget-friendly field trip to the Red River Bridge. It was a suspension bridge about 330 feet above the Red River. On the way over, the kids asked me what was wrong with suicide. Nothing's wrong, I said. It happens. We want to try, they said. You can't, I said. Why not? Because there's no going back. So? they said. So you'll be dead. What's wrong with being dead? There are moral repercussions, I said. 
You'll make loved ones suffer. But we'll be dead, they said. True, I said. I considered swerving the van and rolling it over the feeble railing of the bridge, killing us all. Perhaps I would meet the gatekeeper and he would thank me for leading so many souls out of their illusory prison. But the thought of water rushing into the van and choking each of us in a drawn-out manner as we struggled against the pressure forcing the door shut me, shut kept me on the road. I parked a block away and we walked to the bridge. We waited until sunset for a jumper to show, but no one was in the mood. The kids were getting restless. Their attention spans are shorter than yours or mine. I told them that the majority of jumps occur at night, under the moonlight. I don't know if that's true, but it convinced them. They could be quite gullible. Plus, I had the keys to the van. We waited another hour and a half and finally heard sobbing coming from a point on the bridge some 80 or so yards from us. The kids swarmed and I followed. Sure enough, we had our subject. She looked about 40 or 45 and was barefoot in a black cocktail dress. Why are you doing it? The kids asked, climbing over each other to get a better look at her tears. She would not stop crying. Her eyeliner made two rivers of sediment. Do you reject the common presupposition that life is real and robust? They asked her. Are you curious about what awaits you in the vast darkness? My husband's been cheating on me. I caught him today, she said. So it's a matter of the total suffering outweighing the total good in your lived experience? They asked. I, I, I don't know, she sobbed. I just don't think I can go on. We were hoping for a less cliche answer, they said. What? She said. The striped shadows of the bridge's cables lacerated her figure. Well, go ahead and do it then. We're waiting. You, you want me to j jump in, in front of you? We require a demonstration. What does it matter who watches, the kids said. You'll be dead. I don't want to be watched. Besides, you're children. We're truth seekers, they replied. She turned to me. Are you in charge of these kids, she said. We are all masters of our own domains, said the kids. You should be ashamed of yourself, she told me. They're masters of their own domains, I reiterated. Her eyes sought something in mine that she didn't find, and she walked away. The students were outraged. We require a demonstration. We require a demonstration, they yelled at the back of her slender black dress. Then they turned to face me. Mr. Langenstein, they said, teach us more about the ethics of sacrifice. Their goblin fingers wrapped around my legs like small tubers, and they dragged me to the edge of the bridge. There were too many of them to break through with, without seriously injuring one. They held me against the rail, and Maggie Rogers climbed on my back and pushed my head down, forcing me to contemplate the obsidian surface of the water. What do you see? They asked me. Nothing, I said. What do you fear? Nothing. Lies! You won't do it, I said. We'll do it, they said. You won't, I said. They were probing me for weakness. I hid it. I felt them tugging on my knees, but they couldn't lift me off the ground. At last, they let go and wandered through bars of moonlight back to the van. The drive to school was quiet. Thanks for being with us on the Miller Oddcast number 12. 
featuring the work of Harrison Gatlin. Our gratitude to him for allowing us to showcase his work. It's an honor. Stay tuned for Miller Oddcast Lucky Number 13 coming soon. And take heed. Submissions are open now for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize. Learn all about it at our website. Thanks also to the Missouri Review Contest editor Bailey Boyd and to Patricia Miller for her generous support of the Miller Audio Prize. Finally, TMR is open for submissions year-round, and we remain dedicated to discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Be heard. Give us the opportunity to discover you. Subscribe or submit your work today. Learn more at MissouriReview.com.